Power hour. Power hour. Coal, wind power, nuclear power, natural gas, solar power, ethanol, oil. Power hour. The show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein, resident fellow at the Ayn Rand Center for Individual Rights. Welcome to Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts discuss today's top energy issues. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Our topic today is energy's impact on the climate, the issue of global warming or climate change. Today's discussion of energy policy is dominated by the claim that CO2 emissions from fossil fuels are warming up the planet with catastrophic results on the climate. We're told that this is a matter of consensus among all the top scientists and that the time for debate is over. It's time for action. Well, Power Hour is a show based on the idea that to draw the right conclusions for action, you first need to be informed. And in my opinion, the time for debate is certainly not over because the vast, vast majority of us don't even know what the debate is about let alone what has been proven and what hasn't, let alone what action implications all of this has. So on today's show, we're going to talk to one of the world's foremost climate scientists, Dr. Richard Lindzen of MIT. One reason I'm bringing in Dr. Lindzen in particular is that even though he's an extremely prestigious climate scientist and he's been in the field for literally half a century, he doesn't count on that prestige when he explains issues. In fact, he is very critical of the phenomenon of people taking the pronouncements of climate scientists on faith. The purpose of today's show is not to definitively establish how much CO2 is impacting the climate. As we'll see, that is way too complicated a question to resolve on a one-hour podcast. Rather, the goal is to get a more objective idea of where the field of climate science actually is in answering this question. Is it really known that man-made CO2 is leading to catastrophic consequences, as many prominent figures claim? Is it really known that man-made CO2 is having only benign consequences, as other prominent figures claim? We'll get to Dr. Lindzen's take on these and many other issues after the break. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues. Okay, joining us today to discuss climate change... Uh, and climate is Dr. Richard Lindzen, Alfred P. Sloan Professor of Meteorology at MIT. Dr. Lindzen, welcome to Power Hour, and thanks for being here. Oh, glad to be with you, Alex. Uh, to start off with, could you give us a little bit of background about your study of climate science? Because we hear in the news all the time about various climate science experts. And in my reading, you are a genuine climate science expert. So it would be, I think, interesting for our listeners to know how long you've been studying the subject, what your particular expertise is, and how all of this relates to the global warming debate. I think the whole issue of expertise is a little bit bizarre. And I wish more people would try and dig into it on their own rather than uh, take the lazy way out. But, no, I've been looking at what is called the general circulation and properties of the atmosphere since the 60s, early 60s, and uh, worked on phenomenon, you know, why the winds have their distribution, the temperature has its distribution, what causes the oscillations of the atmosphere and so on over this period. In the whole climate change debate, the thing that, uh, as, a, as a layman and climate scientist, 
in climate science that bothers me is that we're being asked to take a stance on what seems like an extremely complex issue. The issue being the degree to which CO2 emissions by human beings are impacting the climate, and yet we have virtually no background knowledge. So I'm wondering if it would be okay if I could ask a couple questions, just background on uh, some basic questions on climate science that I have. Sure, fire. Okay, so when we talk about climate, what exactly is the climate and, and how does it relate to weather and storms and the things we experience on a daily basis? Okay, that's a rich question. What you're usually presented with is an obscure statistical residue, something called the global mean temperature anomaly. It's very small, it's changed very little, it fluctuates that little much all the time. It's a fraction of a degree and no one could perceive it personally amidst all the variations they're normally subjected to, day, night, uh, summer, winter. Uh, even in the course of one day, the temperature varies hugely uh, relative to that number. The whole notion that that number encapsulates all of climate is absurd, and that that number is controlled by one variable is equally un implausible. Uh, and yet, for public consumption, the problem has been reduced to that on the assumption that the public will not look at the numbers and see that they're tiny. And so the real questions are closer to what you said, namely how important in this whole mix is CO2? And there too, I mean, a lot of verbiage is presented to befuddle the public. Uh, the fact of the matter is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change agrees if you just double CO2, and that's quite a lot, uh, you'll get about one degree change if everything else is held constant. Uh, to project problems in the future, you have to assume that nature will take whatever we do with CO2 and make it much, much worse. This is called positive feedback. No engineer would ever develop a system that had that property. And there's no evidence that the Earth's atmosphere has that property. Indeed, if you looked at the temperature change over the last hundred years and assumed it was all due to CO2, you'd still get that the system is much less sensitive than the models are saying. The models then, quote, correct this by using a fudge factor, which they call aerosols, and they subtract out, you know, between half and 80% uh, of the warming they're projecting, and uh, then saying that, well, they can replicate what's observed. But each model has to use a different value, so it's just a fudge factor. And, you know, nobody is aware of that. I mean, you have people, including, I'm told, the Vatican, who are deeply concerned with this. And from a religious perspective, it's like uh, accepting the view that God was an idiot as an engineer and is utterly dependent on the good graces of man to correct his creation. Uh, so could you, could you talk about that? So there's this issue of, of feedback and so, well, 
let me see if this is correct. My understanding of the greenhouse effect is that it is often distorted that the the baseline idea of the greenhouse effect that people often describe as a blanket that that doesn't warm the earth all that much and that it it that to be really scared you have to believe in these positive feedbacks how do how does the greenhouse effect fit in with other drivers of climate because often we talk about just co2 in climate but Surely there are many other things that are affecting the climate that we don't hear about and we don't really know, or at least I don't know, what are the relative weights of all of these things? Well, the biggest problem at the moment in detecting any cause at all is an absolutely crucial fact that, quite frankly, climate changes by itself without any external forcing. There are external forcings that are associated with the major ice ages. They're on very long time scales. But on time scales of years to even centuries, uh, the slow exchanges of heat between the surface of the ocean and the deep ocean uh, are themselves huge forcings of surface climate. And so you have all sorts of changes that require no forcing at all from the outside. And these are so far considerably larger than anything man is doing. What, what exactly is the definition of forcing? <laughs> well, the usual way it's used is to say if the Earth were in radiative balance, meaning meaning the incoming sunlight is balanced by the heat radiation emitted by the Earth to space. And the emission is not from the surface, but usually from about five kilometers, six kilometers up. Um, that if you add a gas like CO2 to it, uh, it'll temporarily imbalance the system and reduce the cooling so you have a net heating and the system will warm up to reestablish balance. The difference, the imbalance, is called the radiative forcing. So you could get an imbalance by, for instance, changing the cloud cover, which would uh, change the incoming radiation, and also the outgoing. You could change it by a volcano that suddenly produces a sulfate layer uh, in the upper troposphere that reflects light, and that, that imbalance is called climate forcing. But you could also produce it uh, by the fact that uh, the surface of the ocean is, is affected by motions in the ocean that also imbalance the system and act as forcing. So you mentioned that um, the climate changes on its own and has, throughout history, I mean, is there any way of giving uh, us a sense of how how stable or unstable the climate has been throughout history? And we hear very generally about these different epochs, uh, but we also hear from many uh, believers in catastrophic global warming that what we're experiencing now is something relatively unprecedented for thousands and thousands of years. So could you give us some kind of perspective of the stability of the climate throughout history? Well, you know, stability is an interesting question also. Um, over the Earth's history, and there's a good case to be made that in the tropics, the temperature hasn't changed all that much. Man himself and our environment 
is sensitive to relatively small changes in a sense. So, for example, we've had ice ages. We've had periods when there are alligators in the Arctic. Uh, the Earth's climate has varied a great deal. And yet, throughout this, it's never gone through any very much that could be called catastrophic. That is, say, in the warm period 50 million years ago in the Eocene, uh, there was an extraordinary amount of life throughout the Earth, uh, species and so on. Uh, obviously, having two kilometers of ice on top of you tends to disrupt life. <laughs> Um, in the last thousand years, I mean, how shall I put it, the claim that it's been stable, meaning that number, global mean temperature anomaly, has remained steady, is kind of mythical. Uh, but given it's so small, the change we've seen in the last century, one needs some words to impress the public that it's really significant. So you say it's unprecedented, and that way you don't have to admit it's small. But there is a general belief that there was a medieval warm period that was warmer than the present. There was the Little Ice Age. The medieval warm period is about a 1,000 years ago. There was a warm period clearly established about 5,000 years ago. There's little question that we had an ice age that uh, ended between 10 and 20,000 years ago. Uh, the ice age lasted for about 90,000 years, and there was an interglacial before that that is believed to have been warmer than the present. Uh, climate has such an array of time scales that if you say, you know, well, this is the warmest it's been in 500 years, people might get upset, but of course that takes one into the Little Ice Age. So, yeah, it's not surprising we're warmer than that and happy to be so. Um, I find it fascinating the degree to which um, scientists, at least to some degree, are able to look back this far in history. But I'm also a little bit skeptical when I hear proclamations made with certainty about how, say, you know, there, there's no medieval warm period or we just figured this out with tree rings. How, I mean, how reliable <laughs> are, these, are these estimates? I mean, how reliable are these estimates in terms of being able to say at a very minute level the temperature was X back 500 or 1,000 years ago? Obviously not. I mean, when I was talking about a degree or two, uh, seriously, uh, if you look at the error bars, they're, they're incapable of making those distinctions. The methodology is weak, and you're clutching at things. I mean, tree rings depend on many things other than global mean temperature anomaly. They depend mostly on summer conditions, and they depend as much on rainfall as they do on temperature. What do you do is a kind of statistical procedure. You take what these things called proxies and try and calibrate them, and you get what are called regression coefficients. And you then assume these are correct, and you go back as far as you wish. But I think it's generally understood that uh, if these were as good as an array of thermometers, uh, 
we wouldn't bother with the array of thermometers, and yet as it is, even the array of thermometers isn't good to a few tenths of a degree. So a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. I mean, when one speaks of the warm Eocene, there, without putting a precise number on it, you know from the fossil record that there are plants and animals that existed at high latitudes uh, that could not have existed if you had cold spells. Got it. Uh, um, as far as uh, um, the global mean temperature anomaly goes, um, you mentioned that people think of climate in this as this one variable way. How would you suggest that we think of it in contrast? Well, first, there is regionality, and, and the simplest form of regionality would be the temperature difference between the equator and the pole. And that certainly, in known climate changes, has varied a great deal. Uh, and so it's pretty odd. I mean, if you have any experience with fluids, uh, the temperature difference between the equator and pole depends on how heat is carried between the tropics and the pole. Uh, heat is carried by motions. Motions depend on gradients of temperature and pressure. And so the mean is always a residue. And you never think of the residue as forcing the uh, phenomenon. And we've devoted very little attention as to how heat is transported and how you establish these large temperature differences. The usual claim is it automatically falls out of the models, but that's neither an explanation nor true. Many of the models don't give you a good determination of this. For instance, no model has adequately replicated the warm periods of the past. So what is, the, what is the overall state of modeling? Because um, as, as with many things in climate science as presented to the public, we hear model predictions as if they're more or less certain prognostications that are just as good as, a scientific, you know, as our classical scientific theories in physics. What's, what's the actual state of these models? How, how much knowledge goes into them and, and how accurate can they be in predicting the future? Well, so far the success is not great, as I say. Almost every model currently used predicts we should have seen far more warming than we've seen, and they have to use an artificial adjustment to compensate for that. Hello? Yes. Virtually no model uh, adequately presents things we know are going on, like El Nino, uh, Pacific decadal oscillation, Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation. Uh, you know, some models show an indication of this, but quantitatively they're way off. We're not very good at forecasting these things. So the state of modeling is limited. To treat it as simple physics is a little bit illusory. Uh, indeed, unlike economists, uh, modelers of climate do begin with what are called the equations of motion. But those are differential equations, and the motions exist on all scales, 
And the fact of the matter is no model currently is capable of resolving most of these scales. And so they become numerical approximations to equations. Moreover, the physics of clouds and things like this that are crucial to climate, much more important than CO2, are acknowledged to be uh, absolutely abysmal in the models. So, given that, uh, I want to get to the issue of how we got to the state that we're in, because from what you're saying, it seems as if what we should be hearing from the media and from many so-called experts should be very different than what we are uh, hearing. I mean, it's it's treated by, I mean, I'd say most prestigious people, uh, if that's a designation, that it's just, it's obvious. It's it, So, uh, I want to just give a quote well, I saw the other... I mean, there's a little bit of flim-flam going on. Uh, I think the general posture has been, within our current high degree of ignorance, it is possible that there may be a problem. And then that is conflated with certain things we do know. You know, there is a greenhouse effect. The effect of CO2 doubling is there. It warms, albeit very little. And so they say, since that is well known, and since there is a wide agreement that the temperatures increase since the Little Ice Age, uh, perhaps we should do something. And that's a huge leap. But it is, I mean, it is the the just dominant view. I was reading, uh, looking back at some columns I'd read, and I find it most instructive to look at just what people in the culture who thought of as as being conversant with science or, or what's going on in other fields. And I was reading something by Paul Krugman, who's a former colleague of yours of sorts at MIT, and he talks about, uh, he writes, researchers at MIT who were previously predicting a temperature rise of little more than four degrees by the end of this century are now predicting a rise of more than nine degrees. Why? Global greenhouse gas emissions are rising faster than expected. Some mitigating factors like absorption of carbon dioxide by the oceans are turning out to be weaker than hoped, and there's growing evidence that climate change is self-reinforcing. And then he goes into, this is all a catastrophe, and this is just presented as you know, scientists just read this off reality. They have the data. There's nothing more to say. Well, Paul Krugman doesn't know what he's talking about, honest, to be honest. I mean, even the study he pointed to was a kind of superficial attempt to put probabilities on various things and then say there was a tale that uh, seemed, according to their weak analysis, that left uh, possibilities of large things possible. I mean, we're really, really confusing the statement. If you look carefully, most of them say could be, might be, and so on. Uh, and this is a kind of scare tactic. People don't like to deal with uncertainty, so they're told there is a finite probability of a disaster. Uh, they might entertain doing something. Uh, but in point of fact, the evidence for that is extremely weak. So how is it historically that we've gotten 
to this state. You've written uh, <laughs> quite a bit on this issue, but and you've been around the field for a long time. So uh, I'd like some of your thoughts on just how it's evolved to the point where the public really thinks that scientists have proven that CO2 emissions are turning the earth into an oven. I don't think the public does. Every survey by Pew shows the public is tiring of this issue. Uh, and I think there's a desperation. And, you know, somehow uh, it's a funny issue. It involves something so central to life something we exhale, uh, something that trees absolutely need, uh, something that all industry produces, that uh, it's, and something that involves huge amounts of money, that all sorts of interests have gotten into it. I mean, scientists in this field have long realized that funding depends on how concerned the public is. Uh, the carbon trading market, if it ever comes to full fruition, will involve trillions upon trillions of dollars, billions of dollars in commissions. The insurance industry is always looking for something where the perceived risk is greater than the risk they think actually exists. Uh, up and down the line, uh, everyone has figured out how to uh, exploit this issue. And once they begin seeing the possibilities, uh, there's a tendency not to wish to let it go. But how, how much does that really account for I mean, the number of academics and scientists who either will preach this or who will endorse it by their signature or by their silence? You mentioned the funding issue in universities. I, I can see the other things where you would have certain businessmen like uh, the, the types at GE right now who all they're looking for is what the latest rules the government has made are so that they can cash in on those incentives. Oh, lots of industry does that. But in, in it's the normal Right, right, that's pattern. just an example. But it, I guess I'm most interested in the scientists and the intellectuals who don't have that classic monetary incentive. I'm curious well, how you've seen them evolve. Well, classic. I mean, you know, at any given university, a large part of how faculty, especially young faculty, are judged is how much money they bring in. Okay, so, but how, I mean, how does that, how has that evolved? Because it seems like there was a time in the field at which it wasn't orthodoxy and it wasn't, it wasn't enriching to claim that human CO2 emissions were this disastrous thing. So how is, how did that how come did that to start? Be? Yeah, how did it start? Oh, it started 30, 40 years ago as a search for issues. And uh, climate was being pushed in the 70s and so on, it, albeit the first attempt was global cooling. But, you know, then uh, CO2 got popular. Uh, you know, even in 1988, when the issue was rolled out in the U.S. for the public, with the Senate hearings, Newsweek's first comment was, all scientists agree. So even before scientists got involved in it, the public was told that not, they shouldn't try and even understand it. All scientists agreed. Uh, that's an interesting tactic. Uh, in general, I think the 
flood of public statements by societies, professional societies that have nothing to do with climate endorsing this issue, I think has to do with political pressure of various sorts. Uh, when you have, as we do now, a government that's committed to this issue, uh, you know, if a physicist or a chemist or a sociologist wants to get government funding, they're told, uh, get on board on this. Uh, this should be a matter of extreme uh, dubiousness to the public. I mean, why are groups that have no knowledge of climate endorsing it, and indeed it's leading to problems. You have a rather substantial uh, group of physicists, chemists, and others who are uh, objecting to their societies unilaterally deciding to endorse an issue about which uh, they find a lot of questions and which they, in which they have very little expertise. So why is it that, I mean, well, let me ask this. What is the, I mean, of the people, of the so-called scientists, we always hear about scientists say this and scientists say that in this monolithic way. How many of these are scientists with the, a real context to understand and have an informed opinion on these issues? Well, this was a very small field. And even within the field, for instance, uh, people who dealt with paleoclimate, you know, digging ice cores and things like that, usually knew nothing about the physics of climate. And, uh, you know, people are specialists. It's this tiny field. For instance, t I would say 20 years ago in MIT, almost no one referred to themselves as a climate scientist. We were meteorologists, oceanographers, and so on. Um, that very much came with the funding. I mean, when George H.W. Bush suddenly increased funding by an order of magnitude, everyone suddenly became a climate scientist. And then the IPCC uh, extends this a little bit. I mean, they speak of thousands of the world's leading climate scientists. Most of us are quite astonished. We didn't know there were thousands of <laughs> leading climate scientists. Um, I don't know what one does about it. I think I judge the public response to be sensible. They realize that this uh, issue doesn't pay the, pass the smell test. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess I was I was conflating the public with and, and look. By the way, I mean the National Science Foundation is spending millions of dollars now on the social sciences for them to find out why the public has not been convinced by all this. I'm not I'm not sure I understand that last point. Well, you know, the polls I'm mentioning showing that the public at large is extremely skeptical of the alarm over climate. Now, that has dismayed people who have been propagandizing this very heavily for the last four years, and certainly even for the last 20 years or more. And so they are asking, why didn't this work? And they're actually funding social scientists now to figure out psychologists, sociologists, and so on, uh, what went wrong in their efforts to convince the public. Oh, I see. Yeah, I've seen this in other fields, too, where they just take as the given that what they're preaching is self-evident and virtuous, and so the, the only question could be an, a failure of communication. Yep. <laughs> um, so how... 
just to get a concrete sense of this, um, I actually had a had a a student of climate science, if we want to call it that, um, who he said he was very skeptical of the the anthropogenic global warming claims, um, and he wanted me to ask you what would you recommend for a student. Uh, who's in one of these departments who wants to succeed, what would you recommend that he do? And for the rest of our listeners, what is it like being a student if you're skeptical of these views? You know, if you're a student, initially you can be skeptical. But if you're interested in an academic career, I think the student would be best advised not to enter this field. And that's happening. It isn't as though students are beating down the doors to get into this field. Uh, they realize something is wrong. Uh, if you find a result that is counter to the paradigm, you'll have extraordinary difficulty publishing. Uh, journals like Nature and Science have publicly declared they will not print anything that questions this. Universities are beginning to judge you by the impact factor of the journal. So science and nature articles count more than articles in the professional journals. Um, if you try to apply for a grant and you're studying something that may cause a question, your chances of funding are far less than if you endorse the paradigm. And so the pressures on a young person are immense. I think that's one reason why it's older scientists that have questioned this the most. It's not because they're so much behind. The field has regressed immensely due to this issue, but because uh, they're no longer quite so dependent on the whole process. And so, you know, I think we'll find some of the advances coming from outside the West where the pressures are less. Uh, this is an interesting phenomenon, but uh, certainly I think it's true that no young person would be well advised to question this. Wow. Uh, you mentioned you thought the field had regressed. Uh, how, how so, and, and how, if at all, is that related to the government funding of it? Well, you remember, we, we discussed this. Uh, you know, this has become an issue where people are treating it as depend, you know, one variable depending on just one other variable. And that's so simplistic that it takes us to the point where we're far behind where we were in the 30s when we began to realize it was the orbital variations that might be producing the cycle of ice ages where it was a more nuanced phenomenon than simply CO2 and global temperature anomaly. Um, you have people, you know, 20, 30 years ago who were studying the detailed physics of clouds and dynamics, and now you have a generation of students who just take a model built by someone else and treat that instead of doing theory. Um, these are all regressive measures. So it'd be, would it be fair to say that in some sense the question of the field has gone from something like how do we understand the dynamics of the climate to how do we show as many negative consequences of CO2 as possible? Oh, definitely, definitely. I mean, which is not a very good scientific question. You know, you start with the answer and try and find out what can support it. 
Yeah, it is. It is. It is scary. One. One other aspect of this that I wonder about with uh, the alleged damages of human CO2 increases is um, all of the claims that are made about how the ecosystem is going to just be totally thrown out of whack uh, by an increase in average global temperature. Could you talk about how much we know about uh, the consequences of an average global temperature change on these phenomena like sea levels, acidification, et cetera? Uh, look, uh, with sea level, as a colleague at MIT points out, that we have no evidence that it has done anything except what it's been doing for the last 10,000 years, which is slowly rising uh, as a natural consequence of the end of the last ice age. Uh, you know, the IPCC keeps on trying to say it's going to be less than a certain number of centimeters, but you've long since, since the 80s already, had a group of environmentalists who felt that if they could only boost it to uh, 50 feet, then they could have a real scare story on, its, on their hands that people would comprehend, you know, New York underwater. Uh, but I think that has very little to do with reality. And is that that true of the other kinds of things, like the oceans are going to get ruined? And um, oh, you know, I mean, the oceans are basic, and uh, it's possible you'd have a small acidification, but it would still remain basic. There's enough fluctuations in the pH that we can see that most if not all life forms uh, manage perfectly well. Now, this is, you know, again, the issue is we're dealing with such a small change in this temperature anomaly, which is not the mean temperature. It's just the average of the changes at each station that you have to have some way of uh, convincing people that this small change actually could be disastrous. But most of this, I think, is an exercise in, I hate to use the expression, wishful thinking, because who would wish for that stuff? But, you know, scares sell. Yeah, and, and as I've discussed on previous episodes of this show with, with other guests more on the economic side, there's a definite history of people trying to find things wrong with capitalism, and they always seem to be able to find a new reason why it's evil and sowing the seeds of its own destruction, and this is a this is a very convenient one because it would be really bad if we were buried by 50 feet of ocean. Um, uh, that, that would be bad, uh, you know, certainly for people with oceanfront property, but uh, I don't see its price actually going down. <laughs> um, as an example of the kind of phenomena we're discussing in general, could you comment on the whole saga of the hockey stick because that was I think the central <laughs> the central thing in Al Gore's movie and the image that people have in their minds about how what we're experiencing is incredibly dramatic. So what is what happened with the hockey stick and what's the status well, of it now? Let's start with the daily newspaper. Um, most newspapers have a graph showing what the stock market has done each day, right? Yes. And they always scale it to the amount that it's changed. 
So on a day when the Dow Jones went up 10 points, the graph looks much the same as a day when it went up 120 points, right? Right. As long as people don't look at the numbers, you show a shape like that and say, see how it's risen, and they don't bother to look at the numbers. And the numbers are still tiny. The issue of the hockey stick uh, was simply that the first IPCC report produced what uh, the community thought was the case, and that had the, the medieval warm period warmer than the present. And so they knew people were saying, well, that was before industry, so if it got warmer then, uh, how do we know this is due to man? And uh, there then was a, 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 a word put out, it would be nice if we could get rid of the medieval <laughs> warm period. And by some statistical ledger domain, uh, some scientists, uh, quote, uh, figured out how to do this. It involved all sorts of cheating and uh, poor statistics and so on, and this has become a peculiar controversy because you had climate gate where anyone could read these emails and see they were cheating you then had all the uh, processes designed to exonerate them for this. And it's amazing. I mean, you, you can have it out there for the public to read, but if they hear that a committee said there was nothing there, they won't bother to check for themselves. You had a congressional report that found the statistics were incorrect. You had a National Research Council report showing the same the NRC, however, uh, spun it, saying, uh, well, yeah, the methods are poor and it's not working, but that doesn't mean the answer might not be true. And so, you know, that was then uh, spun as saying they were uh, endorsing it. And you often find this peculiar use of language where a report, including the IPCC, will have much in it that says that this is very dubious, and then you'll have a press release that summarizes a thousand pages in one sentence. And that often also says nothing, but it's then uh, trumpeted as saying, well, that's it. And that was very much the case with the hockey stick in, I think, the second or third IPCC. And then <laughs> there was the statement, you know, that they now think it likely that man has accounted for most of the change in the last 50 years, and that gets trumpeted even though it has no implication of alarm. I mean, even if man had accounted for all of it, it would have said that the sensitivity was not very great. Um, as far as, as, far as uh, the IPCC goes, you've worked on one of, at least one of those reports, right? I've worked on three of them. Uh, I was a lead author on one of them, yeah. So could you tell you know, us about there, that experience? There's a funny issue there with na working on it. I mean, I have my little Nobel Prize certificate for that. Uh, you have lead authors, coordinating lead authors, contributing authors, and reviewers. And they add all these numbers together and claim everyone is endorsing it. And, of course, no one is asked to endorse it. Um, the text of the IPCC is biased, but it's, it's not terrible. But nobody ever reads the full report. 
you know, you have the summary for policymakers, which condenses it to 20-odd pages. And as far as I can tell, no one reads that either. And then you have the press release, which is a sentence or two, and, and that becomes the icon. So one year it was the hockey stick. Another year it was man has accounted for most of the tiny warming over the last 50 years. I mean, I don't know what you do about it. it it's a peculiar distortion of language. Uh, I mean, do you, do you regret working on it, or do you, do you think it was, you were doing constructive work when you were involved with it? In a way, yes. The section which was on feedbacks, I thought was, at least it didn't say anything terribly dishonest. And that was the ground rule I insisted on. But, you know, it's buried <laughs> in the text. Um, I didn't participate again, and uh, others also who had different views didn't participate again. It's a huge waste of time. I mean, each lead author, you know, is responsible for a couple of pages, and usually he's working with others on that couple of pages. And uh, for that couple of pages, you're traveling around the world uh, two, three times. So so the main aim of the IPCC participation is gathering frequent flyer miles. I want to circle back one more time to the issue of feedback because that that seems fundamental to what's at issue. So let me know if this is correct. The greenhouse effect by itself leads to a mild amount of warming from man-made CO2. And the idea that it's catastrophic depends on um, alleged positive feedback loops. Is that correct? It's saying that the more important issues of how does water vapor respond how do clouds respond? Um, the insistence in the models is that they respond so as to take anything man does and make it much, much worse. And how often feedback loops, I find fascinating. I mean, how often in nature do you find positive feedback loops versus negative feedback loops? Because it seems like as the climate seems to be pretty stable over time, so it seems like you'd have a lot of negative feedback loops. In the oh, climate. yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of things if you assume, first of all, an engineer would never build something that had as much feedback as the models do, because then the smallest perturbation and error in the system could take you out of sight. And so you always build a system that has a way of restoring itself. And the notion that you have a system characterized by very large positive feedbacks uh, is rare and uh, bizarre. So it seems like come, like if you were just entering the f- if someone if you were in the field like let's say well you were in the field let's say three or four decades ago knowing the basics about the climate and someone proposes this theory that CO two is going to lead to all these feedbacks that would be a very radical theory that would require a lot of proof it wouldn't well, be any kind yeah, of common it sense. Uh, it was put forward very casually. Uh, in the 70s by a paper by Manabi and Weatherall. And they suggested the following, which on the face of it didn't seem so extraordinary. Namely, uh, the greenhouse effect of water vapor, which is the dominant greenhouse gas. Um, Maybe we should, instead of assuming that... uh, 
water vapor uh, doesn't change, maybe we should assume relative humidity doesn't change. That would guarantee that water vapor would increase with temperature. And that was considered a breakthrough because it took the little effect of uh, CO2 and doubled it. Mm -hmm. And so that gave it a lot of clout. Um, The underlying thinking on it was, and again, not totally implausible, that as the temperature increases, the capacity of air to hold water vapor increases. But the conclusion would only apply if the atmosphere were saturated. If it's not saturated, and it's not by any means, you're not always having 100% relative humidity, and then you know there are many other factors involved. Uh, their conclusion was sort of like if I had a table with a one-liter jug and the table, and on the same table was a uh, shot glass for whiskey, that regardless of how much I had poured into each, uh, there would be vastly more in the large receptacle. Uh, you know, everyone understands that's not necessarily true. Somebody has to pour it in. You have to do something. Uh, but that's the order of the reasoning that was involved in the positive feedback. Got it. Uh, so we, we've covered a lot. Uh, I'm wondering if you could just summarize for people as, as a takeaway, what is what are the most important things for them to know about the state of the climate vis-a-vis CO2 and how extreme it is. A lot is. of things, a lot of things. I mean, you're, you're saying take one, but I'll, maybe I'll stretch your patience and name two. <laughs> okay. Uh, one would be we really don't understand the CO2 budget itself. Uh, we don't fully understand the relationship between the increase in CO2 and our emissions. And so any policy based on controlling CO2 immediately runs into a roadblock. We don't know the connection between emissions and CO2 level. Now, people will argue that, but it's, it's, you know, it's the usual business that the normal sources and sinks for CO2 are, you know, represent things of which man's emissions are only a few percent. And we don't understand the part that's 97 percent. The other part is the feedbacks. Uh, It's not a question of whether greenhouse gases can cause warming. That's been established. That's not open to question. The question is, how much do you expect? Do you really expect the natural effect of CO2 to be magnified by two to five times or more? And um, that is acknowledged to be totally unresolved. I thought it was a really bizarre letter a year or so ago by the presidents of the National Academy and the Royal Society, where they went on and on about the fact that there's a real greenhouse effect and it's well known and so on. And then as a throwaway line, they said, of course, feedbacks are a matter of current research. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, no one reading that would guess that's the question. And by acknowledging that it was a matter of research, they were saying we don't even know if there's a problem. 
Yeah, no, that's that's something really remarkable, and I've uh, as I've read more of your work, that's that's been solidified in my mind. One final thing: when just reading the paper every day, every day I see a new claim about how some dramatic weather event is related to global warming, and and there are some really bad weather events lately. How would you I, recommend I, look, that, look, that let's listeners compliment Noah? <laughs> uh, Noah, despite being headed by a real uh, environmental advocate. Uh, did say that there is no evidence that the tornadoes were due to global warming. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's, but, but I mean, I heard other people say that, but with, with other things, they certainly say it all the time. Is when, or it's not even just the weather events, it's an alleged discovery every day by the climate science community that further confirms global warming or shows it's even worse than they thought. How would you suggest listeners process that sort of thing? Because it is a real, Barrage, and I have to admit, when I read it, it's just—it's disturbing to see all this every day when it contradicts what I think makes sense about the basic science. I can't answer your question. I—I I, I trust the public to have common sense. Uh, they begin realizing when every event—I mean, Al Gore's movie was, in fact, a very good example of what's going on. Uh, the movie is full of pictures of disasters, right? Right. And yet even he doesn't say they're due to global warming. There's a constant wish to I, associate this in the mind, have people associate these disasters with warming without actually coming out and saying it. Now, once the politicians do that, I'm afraid it's unfortunately the case you will always find someone with the title scientist someplace who will say, aha, yes, I, I, I'll, I'll confirm that. Yeah, that is, that is a little depressing, but um, I have to say it's, I've been following you for about 15 years now, and I've always really uh, admired how much you stood up uh, when many others who I think knew many of the same things didn't. So thank you very much for that, and, and thank you so much for being on the program. Okay. Good luck, Alex. Our Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. My number one takeaway from the points Dr. Linson made is that the climate change movement really doesn't conduct itself in a proper scientific manner. And this is true in a lot of ways, from the way it presents its conclusions to the public to the way in which it gets funding, it falls far short of what science is supposed to be, namely the objective pursuit of truth and the objective communication of that truth. One aspect of this is the climate change movement's deliberate distortion and oversimplification of the very scientific question at issue. The standard thing we're always told, and I've heard this everywhere from my, my freshman chemistry class way back at Duke to op-eds I read today in the New York Times, and this is that predictions of catastrophic global warming are based on the simple greenhouse effect of atmospheric CO2, and that those who criticize those predictions are denying the greenhouse effect. Well, as Dr. Linsen explained, the greenhouse effect from CO2 as such is very mild. The real issue is whether it is dramatically compounded by various feedback loops about which there is a lot of uncertainty and a lot of controversy. To portray the issue as just being the greenhouse effect of CO2 is dishonest. 
And it's pretty clear to me that this is all badly motivated. If the advocates of catastrophic climate change can pretend they're just pointing out to a known scientific phenomenon and nothing else, then they can paint their critics as dogmatic, quote, deniers. This whole oversimplification of the greenhouse issue is part of a broader aspect of the movement, which is it's really, I would say, an authoritarian character. If you are a scientific movement and you have an important new discovery, the way you present your conclusions is by carefully explaining the evidence and trying to get people to understand the issue as best you can. The catastrophic climate change movement, by contrast, makes authoritarian pronouncements, often with references to cooked-up consensuses of scientists. And if you question their pronouncements, they engage in intellectual intimidation. For example, have you ever been asked if you agree that, quote, climate change is real, unquote, with the implication that if you don't, you're some kind of anti-science nut? I have been many times. Note how deliberately vague that question, do you believe in climate change or anything like that, or is climate change real, anything like that is. What does it mean to say that climate change is real? That the climate changes? that the climate is, ch is changing in a scary way, that CO2 changes climate, that CO2 changes climate a lot, that CO2 changes climate so much that we should dismantle the fossil fuel infrastructure that runs industrial civilization. A scientific movement would be clear and exact about exactly what it is asserting, about what we know, about what we don't know, and why. The climate change movement is clear about none of these things, and deliberately so. Another aspect of the climate change movement that is scientifically problematic is its funding, which fundamentally distorts both the questions that are asked and the answers that are given. In any field of inquiry, the questions you ask are vital. If the government pays people to ask the question, how much damage is man-made CO2 doing to the climate, with more funding and prestige coming to you, the more extreme the answer you can give is, that is a fundamental intellectual corruption. And as Dr. Lindzen said, it will shape the type of people who do and don't enter the field, the people who really want to understand the dynamics of the climate without a prejudice toward man-made CO2 as the most important driver. Those people will be driven away. The people who want to make a name for themselves by helping work on an alarming climate model, even if its predictive ability is miserable, will be drawn to the field. There's a lot more to say uh, about the this movement and its problematic nature in terms of being a truly scientific movement. And there's a lot more to learn about it. But I hope that today's show gave you a more objective perspective on where the science actually stands and on how the movement distorts it in pursuit of power, prestige, and environmentalist ideology. And in general, I hope that this show encourages you to think critically about all kinds of claims you hear about science and energy uh, and causes you to neither agree nor disagree with things dogmatically and to always be in search of, of more evidence to get more and more clear. And with that, it's time to wrap up the Power Hour. I hope you learned something. And if you did and think it's important information, please tell your friends and colleagues about it whatever way you can. Facebook, Twitter, email, phone calls, smoke signals, anything short of spam. As always, if you have any questions, comments, hate mail, or love mail, you can send it to alex at alexepstein.com. And to subscribe to this podcast and to, to subscribe to my monthly newsletter with even more energy goodness, go to facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy. That's facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, which has all the links you need, including a new sign up form for my mailing list. Next month, we'll be back with another exciting topic and another exciting guest. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.